too quick for you. I thought you were counting it. <laughs> <laughs> you were three seconds early. <laughs> so good morning, everyone. Over the last few days, we've been inviting you to ex- investigate your moment-to-moment reality so you can really start to discover the truth of the way things are when we let go of our ideas and opinions uh, about life and who we really are. Now, what we discover when we do this investigation will challenge your view of who you are and the way you think the world is. Rumi, the Sufi poet, said this, when you eventually see through the veils, meaning through the illusion, when you eventually see through the veils to how things really are, you will keep saying again and again, this is certainly not like we thought it was. That's sure been my experience. So when we truly see that we are not our bodies and not our minds, we recognize that we are all unique manifestations of this thing called life for ultimate reality, that are, although unique in our manifestation, are totally interconnected and interdependent, much like each wave on the ocean is a unique manifestation of the ocean, but the wave never forgets that it's all water. We recognize, as Daryl was saying last night, that uh, in reality we are nothing, meaning nothing separate. But of course, being nothing, we are everything. The uh, Indian teacher, Nisargadatta Maharaj, put it this way, uh, Wisdom says I am nothing. Love says I am everything. Between the two, my life flows. I think it just encapsulates it so well. So when I was talking about spiritual or ultimate freedom in a previous talk, I indicated that that was freedom from all our self-identifications, identifying with our bodies, our minds, our thoughts, our jobs, our roles, our genders. All of this falls away. So how do we live from this place of freedom when we go back into daily life? What changes Well, for the most part, on the surface, nothing changes. Now, some people, when they have this realization, decide to let go of the life of a a householder and will sign uh, or make a commitment to become a monastic. But for most of us, uh, the appearance of our life doesn't change at all. You still have your job, your family, your friends, your uh, your, uh, relationships. Life on the surface seems to be exactly the same. But what does change is your relationship to those experiences. As uh, a Thai, no, it was a a Sri Lankan monk once uh, said to Jack Cornfield when Jack inquired as to why he was always uh, smiling and happy, he said, no self, no problem. (laughs) There's a huge amount of truth in that. Or there's a, a Thai meditation master and shaman by the name of Ajahn Jumnian, who really doesn't speak much English, but his core teachings in English are empty, empty, happy, happy. <laughs> They're saying the same thing, two very different guys, uh, but they've had that same realization. When we no longer identify with our emotions, but can rest in the awareness of those emotions, those emotions lose their hold over us. When we no longer identify with our bodies as being who we are, we can kind of observe the aging process. We can watch uh, the arising of illness from a place of calmness and equanimity. 
when we truly see that we are not our bodies or we are not our minds, then fear of death disappears because we realize who we really are has never been born and will never die. We see that life is all just Leela. Now, Leela is an Indian term that refers to the play of consciousness, that all of life is a play. So what we do is, when we realize it's all a play, we can kind of lighten up, relax, fully engage in our part in the play, but never forget that it's a play. There's a Tibetan teaching that, for me, uh, in the last few years has really been very helpful. And it goes, don't lose the view in the conduct or the conduct in the view. Now, the view, as we've been talking about it, is when you have uh, this uh, clear realization and no longer identifying with everything, you see that everything is just a unified whole. It's life and it's unique manifestations. So that's the view. Realize the unit, as one teaches at the unicity of life or the unity of life. So to lose that view in the conduct means to forget that it's all a play and really get involved and get serious and get upset. Some of you know I'm here with my partner, Diane, and I've given her permission to let me know, uh, to ask a question. If it seems like I'm getting stuck, to ask me, Bill, are you getting serious? It's a reminder for me to stop and ask myself, have I lost the view in the conduct? The flip side of that is losing the conduct in the view. So if the view is that it's just uh, all one complete whole, there's no separate other individual, uh, then it doesn't matter how I act because there's no one that's really going to get hurt anyways. That's losing the conduct in the view. So we want to have the view and conduct in balance. As uh, our teacher, Matt Flickstein, often says when we start to have this realization, he said, wisdom knows that there's no one who suffers. Compassion knows that it hurts anyway. It really puts it into perspective. Daryl? There's a a poem that I uh, perhaps some of you have have heard before, um, which I think really encapsulates practice in daily life and how we how we uh, move more deeply into uh, and bring more deeply our understanding into our daily life. Um, it's called uh, an autobiography in five short chapters by Portia Nelson, <clears throat> and it. And it creatively describes the psychological and uh, the process of psychological and spiritual development. So here's here's chapter one. I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2 
I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I am in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3 I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. But my eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4 I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5 I walk down another street. <laughs> So as we as we bring our the insight, the uh, the mindfulness that has been cultivated on this retreat and in your practice, you know, back into the conditions of our daily lives, <clears throat> we will find uh, that there's a pull of habit to react. In, the same ways that have created, that we see have created suffering. So, to the extent to which there is mindfulness, we can see the deep hole. We can go around it. We can go down another street. <clears throat> so, as as practice evolves and deepens, and there's just more space in which we see the mind. And we don't get hooked, you know. Where there's this there's this capacity to see, and um, and respond, and allow the the patterns, the habit patterns, to arise and and pass away uh, without getting hooked into them. It's it's difficult. It's 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 not easy because there is this habit energy that that we that we feel pulled into and it can be painful to feel anger or or uh, feelings of um, self-judgment or or um, or or grasping or whatever it is arise without without falling into the hole but having the capacity to to be with these uh, these patterns and knowing having the wisdom and the equanimity to to know their impermanent nature, to know their selfless nature, they're not me, they're not self. They have arisen from causes and conditions. We can we can live out of the space of wisdom 
which is uh, developing and deepening in our lives, live out of the space of compassion. Compassion for ourselves, because when we are courageous enough to, to be present with what is painful and difficult and challenging without uh, getting pulled into reactivity, that engenders deep compassion. And that compassion then <coughs> is available when we see others. The, the degree to which we judge ourselves is the degree to which we judge others. The degree to which we can have compassion for ourselves is the degree to, degree to which we can truly have compassion for others. And and the, <coughs> the whole idea of self and other, you know, begins to dissolve. It's not so. Doesn't it? Doesn't feel so so uh, concrete. It begins to really feel more permeable, more uh, fluid. This sense of self and other. <coughs> so. Um, so our relationships are such rich contexts for practice, because uh, you know our relationships, our, especially those close relationships, they call forth the best in us, and they also are reflect our shadow, reflect the shadow, those those aspects of the mind that we want to deny, repress. Uh, so. So when we, when we see ourselves uh, speaking in anger or, um, or holding resentment, you know, we can, <coughs> we can really see that. It, can become, it becomes part of our practice. When we see ourselves holding an attitude towards someone of, uh, of judging and, and, and not accepting them as who they are, just really accepting and loving them as this manifestation of life that they are. Because it's not always maybe who they are doesn't always feel comfortable for us. Maybe who they are feels too sensitive or who they are feels too active or who they are feels too passive. Uh, So we want them to be somebody else, an idea of who we want them to be. And then opening the heart and, and really loving what is, as Byron Katie says, loving who they are as they are, really opens whole new avenues in our relationships and brings transformation. The most powerful, the most powerful agent for transformation in relationship is loving ourselves and loving our our partners, our children, our parents, as they are. So that letting that be the baseline. <clears throat> of course, you know, in, in uh, sort of this going home uh, instruction that that uh, we give at the end of retreat, it's always important to really emphasize the importance of, uh, of daily practice. Um, 
connecting, touching in with, uh, with the heart, with the mind, finding that, that presence, um, remembering who you are. Uh, who you are is, is that boundless being, the I am-ness of that wonderful uh, meditation that Bill led us in last night. Um, Just really uh, taking the time to simply be every day is, um, is so wonderful because we can get so caught up in the activities of life Uh, and there's so many pressures to get caught up in the activities of life and and we uh, we can we can move into a kind of a an automism or automatic autopilot autopilot (laughs) yeah and where the, the mind is just you know kind of asleep and um, and we're just doing 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 and we're and we're just exhausting ourselves and at the end of the day you know we're just depleted there was this uh, there was this physicist i heard i forget his name but i just happened to listen to a ted talks and he was talking on spirituality and uh, and he was saying um, you know our lives are so full of doing, 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 doing. We're always doing. And, you know, we just really need to take time to be. Just be. Said, And then we become more balanced in our lives. And it becomes this beautiful rhythm of doobie, 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 doobie. <laughs> <laughs> There's, a, there's another poem that I love um, that <coughs> I think is a wonderful poem to read <coughs> at the end of a retreat. Uh, and, it's, um, and, and I'm going to read it and then, and then we'll have some time for your questions and, uh, and discussion about you know, practice in daily life or, or, or any questions that you may have, you know, about practice, that anything we've talked about on retreat that you, you want to talk about. So this poem is called Hokusai Says by Roger Keyes. Hokusai Says, <clears throat> look carefully. He says, keep looking Stay curious. He says, there is no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck. Accept it. Repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. 
He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says that every one of us is a child. Everyone is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says that every one of us is frightened. He says that every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, feel, let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. So I'm going to, uh, I got, there are a couple questions that were on the bulletin board, so I'll start off by answering those and then uh, I'll invite, or will invite. So you can ask a question, uh, you know, to Bill or to me if it's something about, you know, what we taught or or you won't just want to get one of our our particular take on something or, or just a general question and Bill and I will toss a coin or... Arm wrestle each other. So the first is um, uh, in Vipassana practice, should we pay equal attention to all thoughts that cross our mind, or should we disregard those that seem trivial or mean and meaningless? Songs, for example. So, so in Vipassana, we're we're simply noticing the impermanent nature of of thought, and we're not. It's not. We're not controlling what enters into our consciousness. And so if, if the attention is drawn to you know, a song, then we, we simply notice that <coughs> this is something arising in consciousness and perhaps in our inner hearing, in, our, you know, in, in the mind and words. And, 
And so we see. We see the impermanent nature of it, and, and then we let it go and return to the breath. So that's, that's um, that. And then, um, what does it mean to meditate on... Uh, I, could, I can't read the what's in paragraphs on something if if uh, sorry in, in parentheses there's something but what does it mean to meditate on something if we are to watch our thoughts uh, something and disappear or I guess arise and disappear so uh, there's a difference between meditation um, which is uh, a practice of silence in which we're not, you know, where we might be attending to the breath, we might be, um, uh, you know, having a, the breath as an anchor and then seeing uh, something arise and pass away and returning to the breath. Or we might just simply be abiding in open awareness and, uh, and you know, we're, they're aware, we're aware of of thoughts moving through consciousness like clouds or or emotions and there's no attempt to engage with it or do anything or manipulate the mind in any way that's that's um, that's also a practice uh, of open awareness or Dzogchen which the mind you know we may move into in a very natural way as uh, as the mind becomes more more settled and quiet <clears throat> So, uh, but when we are actually um, have a thought or a teaching that we are reflecting on, that's that that's a different kind of practice. And um, uh, there's um, uh, Alan Wallace calls that uh, discursive meditation. So, so we're taking an idea, and we're kind of just you know kind of working with it. We're bringing attention to it. Um, and uh, there's also in, in the Christian tradition there's a um, a practice called lectio divina, the divine word, and it's a way that <coughs> that people uh, would pray with scripture. So we're taking a phrase from uh, you know story of the gospels or something like that, and just letting it be in the heart. And so if, so, for example, um, reflecting on generosity. You know, you just uh, reflect on you know the Buddha. The Buddha taught generosity uh, before all teachings, and and what you know, wh- how does how does this this teaching on generosity touch my heart? And we might find that just reflecting, holding this in the heart in a way, and and coming back to it, we might we might find illuminated you know behavior. Uh, that comes to mind that that was that was not generous, you know. And then and then we might reflect on, you know, what was the obstruction to generosity, and we can we can see that maybe it was fear, you know, or maybe it was a habit a habit coming out of a life of deprivation or, you know, uh, insufficiency. So these these kinds of things, uh, these are ways of working with the teaching. Um, there might be uh, just a, a sentence in a text that that um, that you would just uh, contemplate, or or contemplate the reality of of aging, illness, and death. You know, it's true that 
aging is inevitable. You know, illness is inevitable. No matter how how well I eat and how much exercise I do, you know, this body is prone to illness and and uh, and and death. You know, it's inevitable that this body will die. And 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 how do I how do I uh, what does that mean to me? How does that resonate in me? Is there fear? You know, is is there uh, is there actually a sense of of peace? You know, sometimes when when somebody you know is is coming to the end of a life and is, and and is in decline, there can be peace, especially if there's a, a quality of spiritual uh, presence that a person has. Uh, Come to to um, experience in their lives. So, and another way of of this contemplation could be to have a text that you're reading, and you're just reading it in a very concentrated way, and then you know you're going through the text, and a word will come out, or or a, a line will come out, and you stay with it for a while, and then you continue reading. So that's that's what we call contemplation or reflection in uh, or discursive meditation in uh, in this practice. So um, it's different from the meditation that you know we're talking about, whether it's samatha vipassana or or open awareness. So is it good to have a variety of types of meditation, guided vipassana? I think it's important to um, to be uh, educating and feeding the heart mind with the Dharma. So some people find listening to Dharma talks really, really wonderful, and they'll you know plug in their their earphones and, you know when they're walking, and, and that. That's a good way. Or reading books, uh, you know. Of course, going to um, uh, a weekly sangha meeting if there is one in your in your area where you are hearing teaching from either a teacher or a peer leader, uh, and there's opportunity to ask questions is really nurturing in the practice. Having uh, having some time every day to do some kind of sitting, whether it's samatha or vipassana or open awareness, is also really key and really important. So, yeah. So, the, so I'd say that, you know, both. We're, we're learning, continuing to hear and, and you know, feed the... and feed and, feed and water the growing uh, tree of our dharma understanding. Any other questions? Bill, what's your take on single tasking? I see more and more people are trying to do three things at a time. They're looking at their thing in their... What's the, why did Buddha say one thing at a time? Well, uh, he his uh, ability to see things the way they are uh, was far ahead of what we now know when we look at the brain multitasking with the functional MRI. When we are multitasking, we think we are doing two or three things at the same time. But the reality is consciousness can only have one object at a time. So what's happening is we're going here, 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 back and forth. 
and it burns up huge amounts of energy. And the research is quite clear that whatever you're doing when you're multitasking, each individual thing is done less skillfully. So it's actually, if we want to most effectively manifest who we are, we do one thing at a time. So that's why in the Zen tradition they say when you're eating, just eat. When you're walking, just walk. But but I'll add, uh, uh, there's a story I've heard from Zen Master Sonsanin, who was a Korean Zen master who uh, came to North America. And uh, he had always been emphasizing this. And one morning, his student came down, and there's him eating his breakfast and reading the newspaper. And he says, what are you doing? When you say we're supposed to eat, just eat, and walk, just walk, he said, when you eat and read the newspaper, just eat and read the newspaper. Yes. Uh, speaking of neuroscience, um, the scientists now, if I'm right about this, can see how consciousness is generated in the brain. And um, would you agree to this? No. Oh. Uh, they can see uh, uh, electrical activity in the brain, but they don't see consciousness. Well, what they're inferring that this activity is an expression of consciousness. But no one's been able to measure it. Well, yet. well, would you say that also that memory is also where they see memory happening is also then an expression of, or this this pathway that they're able to see is also an expression of that memory then? Well, memory is stored biochemically, so it's just a biochemical process unfolding that they can uh, observe uh, in terms of the changes in energy, because that's what MRIs just are different energy levels that they can see and how things shift. So if I'm using a part of the brain, it really lights up, and when I'm not, it doesn't. Right. So I don't think too many scientists will talk about consciousness. I think that's a word that they shy away this from. This is what I took great comfort in before as well, was that people haven't been able to figure out consciousness, and I'm like, oh, that's because consciousness is all there is, and that's all I am and everything. But I've actually been quite disturbed by seeing... Um, YouTube videos of various scientists, neuro- neuroscientists who are coming up and saying, well, actually, we can see where evolution happened and where consciousness is now a part of the evolutionary process and self-consciousness um, is actually a biochemical. I wondered what your thoughts were. I, I, I haven't heard that specific thing in, in terms of my own reading, so it, it, I'm not denying it. So, uh, so I, I would like to... Um, in Buddhist teaching, there's a distinction between sense consciousness mm. and awareness. So, uh, in sense consciousness, it, the Buddha talked about uh, consciousness of seeing. And so, when we see, what's the Buddha? The Buddha described that there there is a sense object. So, the sense object right now is, you know, I'm looking at you. And, and then there's the sense organ, which is the eye, which is taking in the reflected light off of, uh, you know, the form and the colors. And then there's sense consciousness, which is the uh, interpretation of, of those light w- waves as they are taken in by the eye. And, and, uh, and, and, with memory and you know perception and so on is creating a sense of a form in the brain and so that sense consciousness you know the buddha said is impermanent as you know as a 
hearing consciousness, uh, smell, taste, touch, and thought. So that kind of consciousness is, you know, can be seen in the brain, but but there is something from which everything arises, form, feeling, perception, mental uh, formations, consciousness. And this this is sometimes called, and the, the words get confusing, sometimes it's called consciousness by spiritual teachers, yes. and sometimes it has a capital C. Sometimes it's called awareness, or Buddha nature, or uh, the ground of being, okay. or ultimate truth. So we're getting confused. So there's there's a yeah. The, so so that so, so seeing we I tend to identify mm-hmm. with sense consciousness, right. and we say I am seeing, but simply seeing is happening. Perception is happening. Awareness wakes up and goes to sleep. The brain wakes up and does this and stops, but that has nothing to do with it. Um, what is what talking about? The what is, yes, the I am is is not dependent on sense. Yes, I think that on was, any sense object. I think I was thinking of my I am as consciousness, and so it was disturbing that that could be a, an evolutionary thing. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. See, one's dependent on conditions. The big C consciousness is unconditioned, and uh, I uh, I'm glad. Daryl came in because I thought you were talking about the, the big C consciousness as opposed to the little well, C consciousness. I was. I okay. Was the two. Oh, okay. I was, yeah, I think I was confused. Great. The two. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, just wanted to know your thoughts on do you believe that everything happens for a reason and like there's no coincidence? What do you think about that? Um. There's a way in which life is unfolding perfectly. Um, and things are as they are, and they have they have they are manifesting as they are because of causes and conditions. But the Buddha said that, you know, we 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 cannot possibly, there are so many causes and conditions that go into every moment um, that we can't possibly make sense of it. So when people say, you know, if somebody uh, gets sick or if somebody experiences something wonderful, oh, that's their karma. Well, that's a very um, uh, kind of ignorant use of the word karma. It's not really using the word karma in any way that's a spiritual understanding. Because we don't know. We can't know. So so it's just there's just so many causes and conditions that are manifesting in every moment. So so really um, simply uh, open being open and present to what is, because that is how life is manifesting in this moment. You know, we might prefer it to be another way, uh, but that's not what is. That's not the truth of this moment. The truth of this moment is what is. And so, um, so thinking about, you know, uh, all the causes and conditions, um, I mean, sometimes 
sometimes in our own experience, in our own immediate experience, um, there might be something very evident to us, like, well, we lose our temper at somebody, and then they yell at us, or they, you know, look dejected. Well, there's a there's an immediate cause and and result there, which is a kind of a common sense thing, and then you you know you respond in in such a way as to you know, ask the forgiveness or um, whatever needs to be done. Um, so, uh, but in general, in in kind of yeah, is there anything you want to well, add? Well, the, the mind, as we've already discussed, dislikes uncertainty. So it's the mind that ascribes meaning. There is no meaning except what the mind attaches to it. That's why two people can have the same experience and one mind will say, that's what it means, and another mind says, that's what it means. The reality is there's just the experience. And the other thing, the question was about meaning, and then the other word you said was... um, Coincidence. Coincidence. It's it's all uh, synchronicity, that everything, as Darrow was saying, everything affects everything else. So people will say, oh, that's synchronicity. Everything is synchronicity, (laughs) because everything is affecting everything else. Once you realize that, uh, you let go of trying to have meaning and just be there for the experience. See what the truth of that moment says. curious because if perception and your interpretation of, of, of what you're taking in, like if there's a greater good seat consciousness and a lesser seat consciousness, which is just your sense consciousness, consciousness right? Did I have that right? There's a big C which is like outside of everything that's coming in through your perception, right? It's not outside. It, it is. It is. We are that. Uh, you know, Nisargadatta Maharaj says, I am that. So that is what we are. We are that uh, ground of being. We are, and it's manifesting uh, in in so many ways. It's life manifesting, taking shape, taking form, arising, and passing away. My interpretation isn't really fully developed yet. So I'm wondering then: is all perception? Uh, a perceptual distortion. Like, is nothingness the only true perception? Are you asking somebody in particular, or does it not matter? Uh, uh, either one of you. I mean, I, I don't know if I okay. really understand what I'm asking. Okay, so perception <laughs> is conditioned. So, you know, like, uh, when, I, when I look at... Um, a tree, you know, you know. I I'm seeing, I'm taking in something, and and that perception is telling me, perception is, you know, like when I was three days old, and I might have, you know, or or six months old, I might have put my hand on a tree and felt it, you know. I wouldn't a word tree wouldn't be in my mind. The sense of that. It is some some kind of unity separate from other trees wouldn't be in my mind. So the sense that I can look at a tree, you know, is a perception, and you know we probably share that percep- share many aspects of that perception. 
But, you know, if you're a botanist, you might have a different perception of the tree than I do. Or, uh, or if you lived in the woods, or, um, or if I have, you know, painted trees, you know, uh, as an artist. So our history, our, our experience will shape our perception. And everybody, although there are many common aspects to our perception, there are also uh, many, you know, many unique and ex- experientially conditioned aspects to perception. And the fact that we perceive that tree as something other than self is a distortion, is a perceptual distortion immediately. Because we see that somehow that tree is there and I'm here. So that is a perceptual distortion. So, but perception, you know, is part of life. Uh, as, as, a, as a, somebody who's practicing the Dharma, we can know that. And we can know that perception is, is a mental construction and it's, it has a function and it has its usefulness and it's not the ultimate truth of the tree or you know, the experience of, of life, which includes body, mind, tree, air, wind, water, and so on. Does that help? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Uh, I just uh, don't have to work with the uh, <laughs> Everybody perceives the world differently. No two people's worlds are exactly the same. When you die, your world will die with you. Mm-hmm. But as Daryl said, there's enough common overlap that we can interact and uh, kind of uh, not bump into each yeah, other too and much. I understand that there's just experience. Your experience is business, you know, and, uh, and I understand that. Uh, and, uh, and I said, I'll meditate more just to be politically correct. Because <laughs> I know when I, when I give an opinion that my opinion is usually not I'm thinking, and then, <laughs> so I'm trying to avoid people. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it, these are, these are ideas that we, you know, that are offered and we kind of, as I, as I talked about in the beginning of the retreat, you know, there's the hearing and then, uh, or, or reading, or however we're taking in the Dharma, which are ideas. And, um, and then there are, then there's the experiencing uh, and understanding and, and kind of integrating through looking at our own experience. And then, you know, and then there's the realization, and then we're not carrying ideas around anymore. So, um, uh, Ramana Maharshi used the image, you know, of the Dharma, that you take a thorn, you have a thorn in your, in your, in your hand or in your body somewhere, and you take another thorn to poke it out, to get it out. And then you don't hold on to the thorns, you throw them both away. So, so these ideas are not, I mean, it's not like you have to really get the ideas and, you know, but use them. Use them as a way of investigating your experience. Yeah, yeah. If I'm being honest, I'm going to say it's quite complex. 
I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like the ideas shouldn't feel heavy, like a bunch of stuff you have to get. And, you know, as I said on the first night, it's not... It's not like uh, you know a classroom. It's not that kind of learning. You know, everybody is in their practice is working in different ways, and some of these ideas may be really helpful to you, and some may not feel like they matter at all at this point. You know, but maybe later they will, or or maybe not. You know, uh, you know some people. Some people practice in so many different ways. Some people practice a really heart-centered practice, and it's it's really about love and compassion, and 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 that's a, a transformative path for them. And and they really, you know, they or devotion, you know, a, a devotional path. There are so many different ways of transformation. So so these are really it's it it is it is this. Uh, you know this magic buffet, and so what's on your plate that you know you really find interesting, that you really find nourishing. You know, well, focus on that. And if the other doesn't feel like it's useful right now, don't worry about it. You don't need to take it. In. And you know, you said uh, maybe I just don't know. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn's teacher was the same Zen master I talked about, Sonsonin. His primary teaching was just keep don't know mind. Because then you don't get caught in the concepts. There are always then you're having the experience, not getting con- caught in our concepts about the experience, because they're not the same. Yes. I'm just curious. Are there any um, dharma teachings around uh, animals or other forms? And the only reason that comes to mind, oddly, is I'm sort of thinking if I strive to be a dog with awareness, it's sort of for uh, whatever reason that's connecting with <clears throat> And I'm just curious if there's any thought on nature or animals or what, if anything, there is to be, t- to be uh, not taken, but our, I mean, the relationship with all. Uh, I don't know specifically about with dogs. I In my waiting room of my office, I have two posters uh, on one wall, it, it's a it's a circle going out, uh, and it's called the Golden Rule. And all the way around the circle are uh, teachings on the Golden Rule. You know, love thy neighbor as thyself. From each of the different spiritual traditions, on the opposite wall, there's a similar uh, poster called the Green Rule, and it has selected teachings from each of the major spiritual traditions on honoring the earth. I don't know the one from Buddhist practice, but it's there. Okay. So there are some, but I can't quote it. Can I just mention on that? Sure. Um, uh, on, on YouTube, you'll find, if you're not aware, <coughs> there are scientists who have found, um, have done tests on dolphins and octopus and I think elephants, um, that they are self-aware and that the tests that they do find that, if you're curious about that kind of thing, I've thought about that as well, like what's the whole dog thing, but I just absolutely love, I'm so excited because 
for so long have been searching for an answer. And it is fun to know sometimes, even if you don't know, it's fun to learn. Um, what you just said, I don't remember about Buddha, but I've always heard people say, this is consciousness. And I'm like, how the hell is this consciousness? That doesn't make any sense to me. Until you said, I'm just so happy. Thank you. <laughs> so I just, Jody, I, I just want to add that, um, uh, you know, dogs, um, Cats, animals. Yeah, cats, you know, elephants, dolphins, they're obviously conscious, feeling, aware, you know, anybody who interacts with animals knows that. Um, and, uh, you know, the beauty of dogs, I have dog. Um, anybody who practices me know, knows about Chloe, my dog. And, and, uh, um, and she's so transparent. She's so open. Her heart is so open. You know, she's right there. So that's, you know, it's, we love dogs for that reason because they, cats, not so much. <laughs> <coughs> they have their deviousness. <laughs> but that's a sign of intelligence. Um, but uh, yeah, they're, they're just so, uh, you know, they are, you know, they are. They are who they are, and and uh, and so, and and at the same time, you know, if you observe your animals, you know, you can also see. Uh, the, I mean, there's the life just shines through them in such a beautiful way. They simply, they simply are who they are, um, and uh, and and yet there's there they also are. Um, uh, prone or uh, they they suffer they suffer and uh, and they and they don't the, the Buddhist teaching on on animals and, and practice is that they don't have the same capacity as human beings to understand the nature of suffering and the causes of suffering and become free of suffering uh, so. So they are very, very like us, but they they don't have this, that those same capacities. So it's considered a less fortunate birth in that way. I'm just wondering if there are any teachings for people who are losing their brain capacity. And I'm thinking how fortunate it is for us to sit here and receive these teachings. But we have this whole generation of people coming along who are going to live longer than any other previous generation, and a lot of whom are going to develop diseases like Alzheimer's. And is there any way, is there any teaching for those people to um, to go towards a satisfactory death and, and uh, to have freedom? Well, if we're not identified with the body and mind as who we are, uh, up to a certain point there's a capacity to uh, be observing the declining process without reacting to it. So as I start to notice that I'm uh, forgetting things, for many people that triggers a whole lot of fear and anxiety and there's the loss of the function and now there's the addition of the mind's reaction to that. If we can just be equanimous with seeing the decline and not uh, identifying with it as who I am, uh, then it 
lessens the suffering for that individual and presumably those around us. But I think uh, more importantly, or equally as important, uh, it's the habits of mind that have been strongly cultivated in our life are often the ones that start to manifest when we start losing our capacities. There was a a Tibetan, a um, Cambodian teacher by the name of Mahagosananda. He's uh, one of Norman Feldman's teachers. Uh, He's now dead, but in his senior years, he developed Alzheimer's. And uh, I had heard people uh, who had met him at some of these big Buddhist conferences. He'd still come. And he was not particularly present for what was going on, but he just sat there smiling and seemingly totally at peace all the time. Might not be able to respond too much to what's going on, but he, his whole life was cultivating love and compassion. And when the other qualities of mind or habits of mind fell away, this was the one that uh, remained. And I know if that was to happen to me, that would be the way I'd want to go if uh, the... Alzheimer's was causing that shift in the brain's capacity. Yeah, I'm, I'm remembering a story I heard similar to this Cambodian teacher. Uh, it was a Western teacher who had um, uh, had mentored many um, emerging student, um, teachers, yeah, new teachers, and uh, and they they had a lot of gratitude and love for him. And, and, and this teacher developed Alzheimer's and, uh, and, uh, and a couple of his, stu- his student teachers came to visit him and uh, he greeted them at the door you know, and they had worked closely with him for many years and he, and he beamed at them and he said I have no idea who you are but you're very welcome <laughs> <laughs> so there was this, this love and peace and uh, capacity to, to simply be present. Um, so you know, I, I think I think for many of us that that because we identify so so strongly with the mind, that, that the loss of mental capacity is one that's that's pretty frightening. Um, but as Bill said, you know, if 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 this is something that occurs, I you know uh, may the uh, Qualities of peace and, and love that are present in me, may they prevail. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, for people who, it's, it's just very difficult, you know, and I think that a lot of attention needs to be uh, given and a lot of awareness needs to be given to the caregivers. Um, and uh, I recently gave a a talk and, and, and retreat in Ottawa uh, for caregivers, uh, people with, you know, caregivers of people with all kinds of, of chronic illness, and, um, and, and caregivers are really uh, quite challenged to, to uh, stay, you know, present with kindness and patience and so on. It is a, um, it's, it's a very difficult question issue. We have a question over here. Oh, no, okay, we don't have a question over there. <laughs> the question here. Um, a lot of what I've learned over the past 
few days feels like liberating and freeing, but I'm also pretty rattled. And I have a question about the idea of no self and about pride. Because I understand um, the danger of self-identifying. Um, but what about when it comes to human relationships? Like, I walked in here feeling uh, proud about being a good sister, a good friend. Not an expert. But, um, yeah, so I'm a good sister and friend, but... Um, so, is that... Can't I identify myself as a sister and friend, and can't I be proud of myself for being good at it? That's my question. Well, I could um, respond by saying, uh, you know, we, we take joy in the goodness of our lives. Um, I remember, uh, I remember once arriving at a retreat, it was a long retreat, in a, and, uh, and I had a, uh, a sit-down with a teacher, and, you know, because it, it was gonna, we were, I was going to be there for three months, he's, you know, he said, so what have you been doing, you know, recently? And I had just, um, I just, you know, responded, it was actually right after the September 11th, uh, 2001, you know, uh, event, and, and I had in my work, I had organized a gathering of people that had really been a very positive thing, a way of coming together around that, and and I felt good about it. And I and then I kind of was self-effacing. I thought, oh, I shouldn't actually, I shouldn't you know, be talking about that or right, you know. And he said, you felt good about helping. Uh, yeah, I, I was. Kind of, and then and then and then the mind came in and said, you know, uh, well, you know, I, I guess I, sh- I shouldn't. I felt like you know maybe I'm maybe I'm focusing too much on myself you know and like it's sort of like what you said you know like creating yourself. He said he said it's really important to take joy, to 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 feel joy in the goodness of our lives. So when we're skillful, when we're loving, when we're generous. You know, Janet talked about the joy of generosity. So so uh, so. You know, when you have a relationship, you know, as a sister, you know, so so there's love between you and this person who is happens to be your sister, and uh, and and there's so many shared memories that sisters have, and and that's that's beautiful, and and it doesn't need to be, you know. A kind of a solidified self thing that that I'm I'm a sister and sisters need to be like this and our relationship needs to be like this. Mm-hmm. So if there's if you recognize that it's something which is dynamic, it's a process, it's alive. There's you know uh, sometimes you know there's there's a lot of uh, mutual joy and caring sometimes. There's a there's a need for distance, perhaps, you know. So so as long as we're attentive to whatever is emerging in the moment in the relationship, you know, f- 
feeling good about a relationship that you feel, you know, there's a lot of good goodness in it is is great. You know, so it it is a cause for joy in our lives. So maybe rather than saying I'm proud of myself for being a good sister, I can say I take joy in this relationship. Right, because you know, when I say I'm proud, I mean people use that word a lot, but it it does create a sense of self, a kind of a solid I'm oh, yeah. proud of myself. But you know, when you say I take joy in it, it it it's more fluid, it's more alive, it's yeah. dynamic. Like it much, much nicer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question. Oh, well, um, I have a thought, I guess, to contribute. Um, I think, um, I remember reading quite a while ago about um, a hole that can fall into or a pitfall on the spiritual path called spiritual bypassing. And if I remember correctly, um, the cautionary note was to remember that, you know, if we're going along doobie doobie doobie, we're doing. And so we need to develop ourselves psychologically as well. And we need, um, that needs to be done concurrently with our spiritual development so that our spiritual development doesn't become corrupted or used in a way um, um, that's not skillful or that's not not the right way. So, and I remember, I think he described the cross as a symbol of our two modes of development and that the horizontal axis was developing ourselves psychologically and the the vertical one was developing ourselves spiritually and so the cross was always growing and that spiritual and psychological development really needed to to develop concurrently and if one got ahead of the other we could get into trouble so that's I don't know if that clarifies being proud of something or being happy about something but just recognizing that in this particular context that's okay but remembering that spiritually there's a lot more to that and another thing I thought about was that to see ourselves it's just an analogy as a lens like the raindrops and the big C consciousness is a beam of light and it hits us and it's diffracted and there's a rainbow and just because we have a nervous system that only sees a portion of every spectrum we don't see ultraviolet we don't see infrared we don't hear sounds that other animals do Um, we have a narrow spectrum but also not only in space and matter, but also in time. And it, that helps me make sense of everything is now. When the light hits us, hits our nervous systems, hits us as a lens, we live in time. So there's the past, there's the there's the future. Whereas it doesn't really. So we see things sequentially, we see things conditioned, we see things having cause and effect. 
whereas it's all happening now. I just thought I'd share that. It stimulated my thinking. Just to uh, something that came up as you were saying that when a, a light hits a prism, so it's the white light hits the prism, and there's all these colors. Uh, one of the colors that are um, emanating from the prism can't understand the white light that caused it to come into being. That's why it's really uh, impossible for the cognitive mind to understand uh, ultimate reality because it's a manifestation, so it can't understand uh, the source with which it came from. And also, I think the things that we thought we were the ultimate mover of, um, we can back up higher and higher up to the point just before the big C consciousness Mm -hmm. and see it more as as reflexes. More sophisticated ones than the nature of one, but... um, but things that don't quite get past that necessarily. I'd like to uh, address. <laughs> I'd like to address your comment about spiritual bypassing, um, because uh, a spiritual bypassing is something very particular, which um, is not so much, you know, related to what we were talking about with um, I mean what you said about the spiritual and psychological development is uh, uh, is I think very very true and important um, but spiritual bypassing is something a very specific to a spiritual path and um, uh, and so uh, it comes about when we uh, develop a, a mind which becomes very calm and very quiet. Um, and particularly this can come about in samatha practice or other concentration practices. <clears throat> and um, uh, or, or it can come about through having a view, you know, a, a wisdom view, which is, uh, says, well, everything is just play of consciousness, everything is, you know, it's not real, it's it's just uh, transient. It's you know, and so and so um, you know, so the fact that you know I uh, I go to work and you know my work is actually exploiting people and you know it's just it, it's not really important you know uh, it's not real anyway or or you know or I can um, you know show up late all the time or hurt people's feelings and. You know what? You know what's what? You know you get you're so serious. Why do you take things so seriously? It's not really important. So there's a disconnect, uh, and that's spiritual bypassing. Um, Bill used the uh, 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 the paradigm of um, the view and the conduct, and finding balance. There's the view. There's the spiritual. Uh, there's the developed spiritual uh, understanding. Um, and then there's our, our daily lives. And so we can lose. So losing the conduct in the view is this spiritual bypassing. Um, and losing the, uh, the view in the conduct is getting so caught up uh, in, in the doing that we, uh, we, are, we lose um, connection with who, we've tr- who we truly are. And um, and many people do uh, get caught up in this um, 
this spiritual bypassing. It's a <clears throat> so, um, yeah, we're losing people to that. <laughs> I, I, I did want to talk about something because I don't, uh, I don't know when else uh, I'm going to have an opportunity, but maybe I'll just take a question. And, and we're going to stop in just a couple of minutes, so if you, uh, if, if, I, I, if you have to go to the bathroom, if you could just wait until people come back. Yeah. I would like to hear your thought about the parallel development between psychological and spiritual aspects. So in my in my own experience, I mean, you know, the cross um, expression is 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 one model that you know one can use to think about it. Um, in my own experience, they really are integrated. I don't. I see them as very connected. Um, it uh, as. Um, as I become less identified with, you know, a personality, uh, a particular story, you know, I I have um, been able to uh, to to just release um, destructive habits, which you know perpetuate suffering in my life, and and uh, and these uh, and these destructive habits. Um, uh, you know, free up a lot of space for a deeper understanding and capacity for love and compassion for myself and for others. Um, and um, uh, and and as you know, as identification as a self has fallen away more and more, um, there's been a kind of a a playfulness and a creativity, which has you know, which is emerging uh, more you know all the time, and and I I feel you know as Roger Key says, you know I I'm just becoming more who I really am. So um, there is this you know th- there is this manifestation of life that we are, and it and it's a body, it's a psychology, it's you know. Um, uh, it is uh, it is a, a process of life. It has a beginning and it has an end. Um, and uh, and I think you know spiritual life and psychological development are are connected. Now, when we have a particular psychological issue, which is uh, comes from a trauma or or comes from, you know, uh, some experience in our lives, you know, where we're, uh, you know, deeply hurt or, or affected in some, some way, then psychotherapy, you know, is really important. And, uh, you know, working with a, a, a professional psychologist or psychiatrist can be very, very helpful. And it's not, doesn't preclude uh, spiritual training uh, and practice, um, and one doesn't preclude the other. So, um, before we move into uh, walking meditation, I, I wanted to just draw your attention 
to something that uh, is on the table outside, and it's a program that I am offering uh, starting in September, and it's for experienced students. So it's for people who, in general, the general parameters of this are um, that uh, people who have been practicing continuously for five years uh, or more and who have done at least three uh, long, you know, relatively long, week-long retreats or, or more, perhaps shorter retreats, excuse me. And, um, uh, and this, this is called Living the Heart of Wisdom, Part 2. Uh, so I've, I've uh, offered two consecutive programs, which are study and practice programs, um, which have uh, involved uh, an in-depth study and practice of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, uh, Discourse of the Buddha, and um, and so so this part two is is being offered to the graduates of this program plus other people who have some ex, you know who have this level of experience and who want to enter into a, a, a structured study and practice program and uh, and it's to and it's to deepen and stabilize experiences of insight that have arisen in in. Uh, one's practice. So um, we will be working with um, a Mahayana text called um, the, uh, the Lojong or the Seven Point Mind Training uh, by Atisha. Um, he was an Indian uh, master. And, um, and we will also be integrating other uh, uh, teachings from Buddhist sources and some non-Buddhist sources. Um, and this, uh, there will be two retreats, one in September and one in August, and a number of other meetings that will happen um, in person in Ottawa, Montreal, and maybe other places, depending on where people live. And uh, there, there are other sort of um, more details to the program. But if you are interested, there is written information uh, and if, you know, if it's something that you know you feel that you're at this point of readiness to do, um, uh, there is information on the table uh, that, and you can be in contact with me to discuss it more. And um, and I will be in 2015 offering another round of Living the Heart of Wisdom Part One. So if that's something that you think you're interested in, um, uh, you can just. Keep an eye on the TNI website, and that will be announced probably early in 2015. Okay, so it's time for uh, walking and interviews and uh, personal interviews if you've signed up for that. Interviews and uh, we're going to be late coming back. That's okay. Okay, so we'll just start. Yeah, when you're ready. Oh, okay. Well, you could start. Okay.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.